Really, that's the point of the trial. And we wanted to hear what Jesse Kelly had to say about that because we know he's thought deeply about it. He's the host of the Jesse Kelly Show. We're happy to have him join us tonight. So, Jesse, you, you watched this whole thing. I mean, did, do you agree that that kind of was the takeaway? You don't have a right to protect your own life. What's the takeaway they're going to get from it, Tucker? Because that's their entire worldview. It's hard for Americans to accept. It's hard for me to accept where we are as a country. Where we are is people in positions of power now. They're the crazed nut job that used to be on the street corner protesting. The, the man-hating feminist who used to hide in her apartment hammering nutter butters. These people are now CEOs, they're district attorneys, they're senators, they're presidents. And that's why you see this. They genuinely believe Kyle Rittenhouse should not have stopped the street animals from burning down Kenosha or any other city. They believe they have a right before God, their communist God, to burn this country down. I love nutter butters. I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to say that. I'm not. I'm not defending feminism in any way. Safe. I, 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 I can't. I can't resist. So what's? So what's the our reaction to this? I mean, you got to think that people watching this trial, no matter what the outcome ultimately is, will conclude you really can't defend yourself in the country. Like, how could you? I don't think people want to hear what we have to do, Tucker, because the truth is what we have to do is get out of blue areas. You are not safe in any area that is blue now in this country, not because of the street mobs either, because of exactly what you're seeing here, because the people who have the power to ruin your life and throw you in a dark hole forever, they are now in positions where they can make that happen. Get to a red area, become an activist, run for DA, run for school board, make it redder. These people, we are not in the year 2000, we're not even in the year 2010, these people People are now desperate and they're lashing out and they're going to hurt a lot of people on the right before they're done. I think that's right. And when the Californians show up, make them obey your customs and not vice versa. I would say. <laughs> Jesse Kelly, such a smart man. Uh, great to see you tonight. Thank you. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Okay, I want to bring up Dr. Peter Navarro in Trump time. By the way, the book is a blockbuster bestseller everywhere, top of the list across the board. Peter, amazing job and for this posse. P Peter, I want to get through this quickly because we've got a lot of ground to cover in just two segments. 2006, you write The Coming China Wars. 2011, yes. you write Death, which is about all the military, and, and you talk about SARS and the weapons, bioweapons. 2011, Death by China, about the manufacturing, that we're going to die because manufacturing is being stripped away by Wall Street sent yes. there. Crouching yes. Tigers, 2015, another thing about Crouching Tiger, about a war, is a kinetic war is imminent if we don't watch ourselves. And then in 2021, in Trump time, which the specter of China is all throughout this book, it's it's Trump's on a roll when the book starts. 2019 is the best Christmas we've had in living memory. Wages up for everybody, everything in the stores, good times are on stock market all time high. And the book starts at the in right in January, 15 days in the new year in the East Wing, in Trump time. You got to get it. It, hang on. Josh Rogan says in his book, uh, Chaos Under Heaven, that you're one of the leaders of this group called the Superhawks. And the Superhawks are different than the hard. Pottinger and Pompeo is a hardliner. you got to confront China. Madison, these guys are realists. Well, we got to contain them, right? Uh, you got the accommodationists, which is Mnuchin and Kudlow and that whole crowd in Wall Street, which you got to kowtow to them to make money. But they got this new group called the Superhawks. And you got Navarro. You know, Navarre, it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. you got Navarre and Bannon that are telling <laughs> Trump the entire time. They're not a legitimate government. They're a transnational criminal organization. We can't accommodate them. We don't need to confront them. We need to take them down brick by brick because they're enslaving the Chinese people. 
in your body of work, as I point to, tell me anybody, any public intellectual or any man of action that has a better track record than Dr. Peter Navarro of telling you exactly what the Chinese Communist Party's going to do, Dr. Navarro. And let's not forget, Steve, uh, that my predictions that housing bubble was going to burst. I was head of that. Uh, 2007, November, I said the stock market was going to crash. And, of course, that's a wonderful episode when, when Butch Cassidy took Sundance off TV um, right the day after the election in 2016 <laughs> because he had the gall to say we hit 25,000 on the Dow. So when I tell you in this book that this is a bioweapon launched, from the Wuhan lab, take that to the bang. When I tell you in this book that Fauci lied by omission about not telling us about what was happening in Wuhan, take that to the bank. When I tell you in, in Trump time that the five heinous acts of China, including shutting down their own country to travel while they inundated the world with their infected Chinese nationalists to, to seed and spread the virus, take that to the bank. When I tell you in Trump time that the election was stolen, take that to the bank. When I tell you in Trump time that Mike Pence in the Shakespearean tragedy playing Brutus betrayed the American Caesar of Trump on January 6th, take that to the bank. And when I tell you that the reason why Pence was the puppet in that controlled by the other Shakespearean char character, Mark Short, his chief of staff, on behalf of the Coke Network, shadowy dark money, take that to the bank. And I want to tell you today, Steve, that we are in danger of losing the China tariffs unilaterally. It's going to be unilateral surrender by a Biden fake president who believes that Increasing government spending is going to control inflation and reducing the, the eliminating the Chinese tariffs is somehow going to make uh, the United States in a better off position when two thirds of the American people think just the opposite. Take that to the bank. So, I mean, look, action, action, action. That's the canon of Bannon. We're telling you this because you got to take all sorts of actions. Yeah, I'm trying to sell this book. But not because I'm trying to make money. I'm trying to get the, mi the mission out. The mission is what? Steve, fire Fauci. Hold the CCP accountable, not just for the virus itself, but for the $20 trillion that they owe this country. The stolen election. Get to the bottom of that. And January 6th, this whole notion that the little Jamie Raskin's got that somehow President Trump wanted to do an insurrection. You were the hero on January 6th, Steve. As I say in Chapter 21 of In Trump Time, you were the guy who had the Green Bay Packers sweep strategy to go up to Capitol Hill. Pence is the quarterback. We had 100 people working on the Green Bay team as linemen, halfbacks, and fullbacks, pulling guards who were going to make sure that we remanded the results back to the battleground states for a couple of weeks so we could get to the bottom of that. Take all of this stuff to the bank. That's why the In Trump Time book is important. Unless we get the message out with a historically accurate document. These books that are coming out, going to the bestseller list, it's like the Bob Woodward math. Two anonymous sources do not equal a fact, Bob. I'm just sick of these left-wing muckrakers dumping all over the president and the first lady. The first lady should be off limits. 
She's the most graceful, elegant, best-spoken first lady we've had since Jackie O. And yet, yet you have somebody inside the White House, Stephanie Grisham, dump on her. I mean, shame on you, Stephanie. My point here, Steve, we've got a lot of work to do. And, and, and the war room posse is really the frontline troops of that. You, you signal something here, and we got to get to get our audience and to get your audience, and particularly the people buying the book and reading it and, and thinking about it, because we need you to think about it. This climate change situation, they, they say they make a very big statement. It's an existential threat, and they're <laughs> in Glasgow, and she, yeah. she doesn't even show up. Doesn't send a video. He doesn't send a briefing paper or anything. He sends a note. Hey, sorry I can't be there. I hope that Glasgow thing works out for you, right? But positioning it in, we know progressives are now saying, since climate change is an existential threat to the nation, they're they're prepared to make a deal with the devil, which is the Chinese Communist Party, right? Which is the Chinese Communist Party. And what they're saying is, what they're saying is that we want to, we'll give up tariffs. He's going to sit there and go, oh, we're giving up tariffs to lower inflation, right? Because Navarro and Trump, oh, they were driving inflation. It was so high when they had tariffs at 1%, right? It was so high. So, so. But that's causing it. And in addition, we can start to work on the really big thing, the existential threat, which is uh, climate change, because the CCP is not the existential threat. They're actually the pacing challenge. Dr. Peter Navarro, yeah, your this, response. This, the idea that China is a competitor rather than an existential threat, this is the Kool-Aid that we get from K Street and Wall Street dating back to the days of Bill Clinton who was the one who shoehorned communist China into the World Trade Organization in 2001. That was the topic of the Death by China film. And from there, that there began the dismantling of our manufacturing base to the point where China was coming into Youngstown, Ohio, and buying factories up en masse, putting them in boxes and shipping them back to the North manufacturing part of China and and just stripping us clean. Five million manufacturing jobs, gone. 70,000 factory, gone to communist China. And and what you look, when I was in the administration, again, documented in in Trump time, we had this beautiful construct I called the seven deadly sins. It, it, that, that popped out of my mouth one time going mano y mano with Chris Wallace on a Sunday. But it was the intellectual property theft, the cyber hacking, the forced technology transfer, the dumping, the state-owned enterprises, the fentanyl, the currency manipulation, the seven deadly sins. Steve, that, that's, that is going on as we speak. It's chapter one of In Trump Time. We're sitting there. I'm sitting there in the East Wing. They're doing that skinny-ass trade deal, which didn't get at many of any of those seven deadly sins. You got you got the scumbags Schwartzman and Fink from Wall Street in the audience hold just it, licking their chops. Hold 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 so whoa, 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 hold on, hold yeah, on, yeah. hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. Are you upset because they had they had premium seating and you're in the cheap seats? Look, I'm I'm sitting there as I talk about in the in Trump time book. Show them, don't tell them, right, Bannon? Huh? I'm sitting there in a cold sweat on the side. Yeah, they put all the White House people on the side. Wall Street and Kissinger was right there in the center, and I'm looking at that, and I'm listening to these people even be complimented, and I'm thinking two things to myself. It's like. 
when Schwartzman and Fink, these these people, all they care about is shipping our jobs offshore and making a buck. That's that's all they care about. It's like when they go to sleep at night, they don't count sheep; they count their money. They don't know. They don't think about or, organ p- being ripped out of people in Xinjiang province or collapse of Hong Kong, much less hypersonic vehicles circulating the globe getting ready to bomb Wall Street. They don't even think about that. Yeah, I was sitting there, but the pit in my stomach, Steve, and this is where it all started, right? You, Steve Bannon, Miles Guo, Doc Hatfield, we were talking at the very beginning of January. You were getting ready to do the war room pandemic two months ahead of the World Health Organization even calling this thing a pandemic. We knew exactly what was going on. It gets back to what you were saying, um, Steve, about my body of work. I, I, I've had some bold but accurate predictions in my life, and I've never been wrong about communist China. I'm not wrong right now. This is where the virus came from. This is the house that Fauci built. Fauci belongs in jail. The Communist Chinese Party needs to be sent a bill for $20 trillion dollars. Fink and Schwartzman need to be looked at for their foreign lobbying on behalf of, a, of, a, of an enemy of the state. I could go on and on and on. And right now I'm warning everybody in the war room that Biden's coming for the Trump tariffs, which two-thirds of this country support, and know that's the last thing standing between China, communist China, and the complete dismantling of the yeah. American manufacturing base. And climate change, don't even get me started. Competition, (laughs) not conflict. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Pentagon? I triggered you. Okay, hang on. We're going to take a short commercial break. Just a little bit. Dr. Navarro, he's going to directly answer the question, which I'm going to give him. What can the war and posse do today to assist in avoiding a kinetic war in Taiwan? Because that's where we're headed because of our weakness. You know, Joe Biden is thinking of and looking at Taking away the tariffs, the, the one thing that's confronted China more than anything else, the Chinese Communist Party, is the tariffs. He's think of unilaterally getting rid of them. It's quite stunning. Okay, we're going to take a short commercial break. We return. We're going to have one of the most beloved figures in China among the Chinese people. That's Dr. Peter Navarro. He's loved uh, by the new federal state, loved by the whistleblower movement. He is absolutely loved by the Chinese Americans, and most particularly by Lao Beijing through the firewall. Because they know Dr. Navarro works every day to take down the Chinese Communist Party and assist them in their freedom. Short commercial break. We're going to be back in the war room. The coming war over Taiwan with Dr. Peter Navarro, the author of In Trump Time, a journal of America's plague year. Next. On Friday's New York Times, Trump allies export election playbook to Brazil. Bolsonaro casts doubt over legitimacy of next year's vote. And throughout that entire thing for our podcast audience, I got the paper up here. It's, it's Dead Square, lead story in the New York Times. They talk about uh, Jason Miller. They talk about Getter. They talk about the possibility of providing uh, the global populist nationalist movement with a platform you can't be canceled on. Before we go back to Taiwan, Dr. Navarro, what are your thoughts? I know you're a big proponent yeah. of this. You, you're, you're a guy that understands the chessboard. Talk to us about it. Well, what I'm focused on, Steve, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get this poll up for you here. See if, see if this is, comes through. I want to go, go over yeah. this for a minute because this is so important. Yep. This is Mon- okay. Morning Console, October 15th through the 19th, yep. 2021. What's, what's really extraordinary about this, and it speaks to the leadership of President Trump, 
Uh, if you look at uh, on the left side there, registered voters, you got Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. And there's virtually no difference in the views uh, across parties and the support uh, for the tariffs themselves. It's, it's, it's uh, well over half, um, uh, particularly for Republicans, but, but Independents and Democrats are right there as well. And like I said, Steve, um, th this is the kind of thing that, that I think we, we need to kind of, kind of focus on. And when you mentioned Bolsonaro, the one thing that always comes to my mind, Steve, if you think about uh, this, this, this Chinese Communist Party virus as a, as a geopolitical weapon, clearly Communist China has advanced its position geopolitically and militarily relative not just to the United States, but, but to India and, and Brazil, right? Because what, what, what this virus has done is really aimed like a laser beam at the populist nationalist, economic nationalists around the world. Trump, of course, was the top target. Uh, but, but Modi um, in India, when he talks tough on China, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, they're all uh, on their own homelands facing the same kind of attack by the communist Chinese. If anybody doesn't think we're in political war with the communist Chinese, I think they need uh, need to think again. And so we just need uh, we need to stay focused. And your, your your question is like, what can the what can the war room posse do? It's like the cannon abandoned, as I talk about in the In Trump Time book. I mean, Steve, you are the action 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 man, and obviously, if we can regain control um, of 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 the hill. Um, with a Republican majority that's that's a Trump Republican, not a globalist Republican, it, we're in a better position to fight back on all of these. How do we do that, the, Peter? You'll, Peter, you're you're the you're one of the intellectual leaders of this. How does that happen? Yeah. We need Trump Republicans, not globalist Republicans. We've won enough elections. We need people that understand the policies, that understand protectionism, understand economic nationalism, understand yeah. that America must be the centerpiece of a man, must have a global manufacturing base second to none. So how's that happen, Dr. Navarro? Uh, well, Steve, you're, you're, a, you're a thought leader on this. And I mean, the fish rots from the head down, the famous uh, thing, uh, the Dukakis, uh, during the Dukakis election. But in this case, in Congress, the, the head down is, is McConnell uh, and McCarthy. And for example, Kevin McCarthy, um, I just, I, he's not very bright. He's very, he's good looking guy who can raise money. Uh, he's got that slick kind of congressman look. That's why he's in the leadership position because he can hand out money to congressmen who are in, in, uh, in contested seats and, and, and then get their fealty and loyalty. But when he makes chess moves, uh, checkers moves when he's when he should be playing chess, like no Republicans on the January 6th committee. I mean, you and I would be the first to want a January 6th bipartisan committee that would legitimately investigate what happened on January 6th, because you and I know it's in the in Trump time book. The Green Bay Packers sweep makes the makes the firm case that you, me, the president, we didn't want any violence or chaos in Capitol Hill. We wanted peace and calm. But when you put McConnell in the Senate and McCarthy in, uh, they use the model of fundraising and fealty 
that Matt Gates is totally opposed to. I, you know, Matt was on the other day. You know, he doesn't take that kind of money. When when congressmen are beholden to Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and the social media oligarchs, they're not supporting Trump Republicanism. They they they're going to go open borders. Uh, they, they're going to go uh, don't crack down on any of that fair trade. Go soft on China. They, all they're doing is trying to maintain. So. The role of the war room policy is really two things, to articulate the message of the deplorables, what Main Street wants. And, Steve, you do that so well having these guests on. You, 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 you do not do the star thing, the celebrity thing, like you see on the Sunday shows, a, a parade of, of Lindsey Graham's. And you don't do that. You have real mothers, fathers, soldiers, people who understand what's going on. So that's an important thing to get that message out, and then just to organize, starting from the grassroots up. You're you're a you're a, an organizer, and you get the, 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 the take over the Republican tell, parties tell, at the grassroots, tell, 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 the school boards. Look, and so you, you're, your your intellectual thing on leadership, on the on uh, the border invasion, on the election, on all of it. How do people get to in Trump time? How do they get how are they following on social media? We got about thirty seconds. My appeal here is go to Amazon today, buy either the hardcover book or the Audible edition, help drive this up so that it can't be ignored anymore by the mainstream media. The Warren Posse has done a great job elevating this, but we got to take that one step further next week and force these people to listen to the message of, of uh, the In Trump Time book. Fauci fired, CCP held accountable, a truth about a November journal? 3rd, January 6th. A a Journal of America's Plague Year. You won't put it down. Sundance. Have a good weekend. Admiral. We'll be, we'll be back on Monday in the war room. Thank you. Hi, Ben. Uh, thanks for doing the tomahawk chop. Very epic. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. You know, um, when, when people say that that's like a, a racist thing, I have to say, if people just went to a stadium and started cheering for the Jews, you know how happy I would be? Um, so my question is very quick. Um, what is your favorite argument for God's existence and why? Okay, so my favorite argument for God's existence is that I believe in free will. Okay, the reason that I think this is an argument for God's existence is because if you believe that human beings are essentially just balls of meat wandering around aimlessly in the universe, the kind of Spinoza's stone that thinks that it was mo moving of its own accord but actually was thrown, if you believe that and you don't believe in free will, uh, then there's an internal coherence and logic to it. If you believe that you have the ability to make independent choices, that you can actually supersede your own, biolog uh, your, your own biological drives and the environment around you to any extent, even to the smallest extent, this means that you believe in something that can't actually be proved by science, but that you are living every single day. And the notion that you have that will, and not only that you have that will, but that that will is capable of comprehending the universe around you, that your will is sort of, your ideas, your ability to comprehend the universe is a reflection of a reality, of an objective truth that is out there, that says to me that there is a God, that there's a common source that stands behind that objective truth and stands behind the mind that can comprehend that truth, or right? sort of a Kantian argument for the existence of God.
Why do you believe you're right about trans people given the American Psychological Association, American Medical Association, American Psychoanalytic Association, I can go on for about five more associations mm -hmm. um, that are very prominent and govern the, um, the existing like health, uh, health government or health industries within um, like the major yeah. Western countries. Um, and all of these associations have multiple thousands of doctors, sociologists, psychologists, and with PhDs in their respective fields backing the idea that sex and gender are different, effectively gaining the medical consensus for sex and gender being two different concepts, yet you have a different opinion. Okay, so sex and gender are two different concepts, but gender is tied to biology. So one of the big problems that, that you see in sort of the, the argument in favor of trans rights is this notion that gender and sex are completely separable. They're not completely separable. If they are completely separable, then this means that identifying people by their subjective gender really has no relevance as to whether they are a male or a female. Male and female are biological terms. So using terminology like male and female to describe a self-perception self of, of maleness or femaleness is sort of a bizarre way of arguing whether a thing is a man or a woman. So here's my question. It's an argument that my my friend Matt Walsh likes to make. What is a woman? Define what a woman is without reference to the word woman, please. Um, so this is actually a logical fallacy called a red herring. You're asking me a question in different or um, in order to actually challenge my question without actually No, it isn't. I'm saying that I, it really is not. I'm saying that biology, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that, that the notion of gender, which is effeminateness or masculinity, can be different from biology in the sense that biology is just pure male or pure female, but to suggest that there is such a thing as an effeminate male is not to suggest that an effeminate male is now a woman. Transgenderism makes the argument that if you believe that you are a woman, you are therefore a woman. Or if you believe that you are a man, you are therefore a man. I disagree with this. There are objective measures as to whether you are a man or a woman. There are objective measures as to whether you are male or female. You're a, there, there's certainly a spectrum when, when, with regard to effeminateness versus masculinity. That's certainly true, but that does not change the underlying sexual dichotomy that is the basis for all human reproduction. Yeah, you can answer. Um, right, so this dichotomy is a false dichotomy that isn't supported by any of the medical associations that I just named then off. Then let me None explain. None of the medical associations that I just named off would actually support the uh, idea that um, gender is biological. This is something that's completely untrue okay, within gender... every single like medical consensus. Uh, well then, I will just say that anyone who suggests that gender has no reference whatsoever to biology, it's not connected in any way to biology, is just full of shit. Because if, if, if the and, and the reason I, and, and the re, and the reason that I then say you, then you then you class it then you actually just disagree with medical consensus yes, within the I disagree, Western yes I disagree with the false medical consensus driven by politically driven quote unquote doctors if any doctor denies to me that there is a dichotomy between male and female a sexual dichotomy between male and female they are ignorant and they are letting their politics get in the way of their science anybody who suggests to you that there is such a thing for example as a pregnant male is not a doctor they are an activist I'm very glad that none of these opinions are actually accepted in academia and haven't been for over 70 years. Sent this here on well, Twitter. Okay, so the notion that they haven't been accepted for over 70 years is a bizarre one considering they were accepted until about five minutes ago. And the basic idea that male and female do not exist runs counter to all mammalian biology, all of it, not just human. Are we to suggest that gender and, and sex are different in walruses? How does this work exactly? 
Like, uh, are they different in bears? Anytime you have a, anytime you have, all mammalian reproduction is rooted in the idea that there's a sexual dichotomy between male and female. To obscure that with all sorts of semantic word games about how you feel subjectively has no bearing on whether male and female are categories that exist. And if you're trying to define male and female with reference to any subjective category that cannot be identified by any metric whatsoever other than how you feel today, I challenge whether that is scientific or whether that is merely a self-perception that is being guided by a political agenda. I'm sorry, I could spend more time on this, but we have to get to the next question. I appreciate it. Hey, Ben Shabibo, good to see you. Hey, everybody here, good to see you guys too. I'm glad to be here. I got in on the stand-in line, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, do you know about the bill that Republicans are trying to pass to stop critical race theory being taught in college? Um, I'm aware that there is a bill. I haven't read the text of it, but go ahead. Okay, so in Florida, I think it's going to go... Oh, I look sick. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be decided, I guess. We're going to talk about it in, like, December. Um, yeah, in the new legislative session, correct? Yes. Yeah. yes. Go ahead. So as a Republican, being pro-free speech... Do you have anything to say against this? Like, we're really simply just outlawing certain words to be used in public spheres, such as education. Um, I feel like more Republicans should kind of see, see this as concerning. You know, you guys always quote uh, 18, or 1984 or whatever. Um, you know, this is like an Orwellian move, isn't it? So, the, so it depends on what level of education we're talking about. If we're talking about the idea that critical race theory can be taught as one of many theories on college campuses, I have no problem with it. Marxism is taught as one of many theories on college campuses. If the idea is that we're going to be teaching critical race theory, which is not taught as one of many theories. It's taught as a framework for understanding the world, and it is a lens through which we are to view history. This is something that the founders of critical race theory openly acknowledge. They suggest that critical race theory has a praxis component, meaning it's a practice component that is designed in order to indoctrinate kids in a particular type of thinking about how America's institutions work. Do I think that the taxpayers of the state of Florida have an obligation to subsidize the indoctrination of their children in that? No. And I think that public education, as an institution, is dedicated not merely to the idea that you send your kids to school and then the teachers dump whatever they want on your kids. I think the idea is that the, the parents delegate their power to educate their children to the state via the public schools, and then they have the authority and should have the authority to determine what framework is being taught. And the anti-American framework of critical race theory, which is unrooted in actual history, ought not be taught in America's public schools. Um. Like, critical race theory is literally a footnote in my sociology class, and it's a framework if you want to take it in as a framework. You Listen, know? I learned critical race theory when I was at Harvard Law School, too, right? I mean, the, I, I, I... In fact, whenever you talk about critical race theory, you say the right things, you know what you're talking about, but because you're a Republican, it's the talking point to go against. No, they we are... I, I'm a pro-free speech American, so this deeply concerns me when there are words, exact words, that are being restricted in the public sphere. Well, that, that's why you I just distinguished... opened up by saying marketplace of ideas. So, I'm a big marketplace I, right, of so ideas. Right, so I, again, I would distinguish between marketplace of ideas in the college realm and mar when, when presumably people are old enough to actually understand what they're talking about, have open and, and interesting debates about these topics, and when you're talking about 11-year-olds or 10-year-olds, or when you're talking about reading Ibram X. Kendi, which is a really dumbed-down version of critical race theory for five-year-olds. Colleges, not for 11-year-olds. Well, then I'll have, I'll, I'd be happy to look at the text of the bill and determine what I think about the bill. I do think that, that public schools, I'm, I'm not sure that public schools have an obligation to teach as practical 
critical race theory. Again, I think there are different ways that it's taught. So if we're talking about just in your sociology class, it's one of many theories about American history, and now we're going to talk about how it applies. I don't really have a problem with that being taught. If we're talking about critical race theory being taught as a framework to view America's institutions to the exclusion of other frameworks, I do have a problem with that. Thank you. I have gum in my mouth, sorry. Hello. Um, so earlier on in your lecture, you were saying that due process past the 14th Amendment has been equally distributed to all groups across America. No. I, said that, I, said, I didn't say that in practice it has. I said the concept of due process is dedicated to the proposition that people should be treated as individuals. Obviously, segregation and, and racism and criminal justice up until the Civil Rights Act would suggest that on a practical level, it was not equally distributed, obviously. Okay, so in idea, but in practice, it was, you agree that it was um, not equally distributed to all groups across America. Sure. Okay, so then wouldn't that, how is that in opposition to um, critical race theory that teaches that these institutions have been used to um, prosecute certain groups differently than others have been prosecuted? Because that's not what critical race theory teaches. What critical race theory teaches is that supposedly colorblind institutions like due process of law are cover for racism as, a, as an institution. Due process of law is a problem because it is not because it is a good concept, badly applied or improperly applied. It's because it is in and of itself a discriminatory concept. Right? This is what they say about capitalism also. Right? Free market economies are inherently discriminatory. They are covers for institutions of power. That's the critique. The critique is that due process of law, in and of itself, the idea of treating people individually ignores key components about human beings, namely how they are seen racially by other human beings, and thus due process of law is not enough to guarantee that people are treated equally or can be treated equally. I disagree. I think due process of law is an excellent guarantee, and straying away from that guarantee has been the problem with regard to due process of law, not the actual guarantee itself. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is a bit gone. Um, so then would you agree not banning critical race theory in public, um, like in theory that, in the theory that they are covers, but would you be a proponent of having the education that these institutions have been used to attack other minority groups across America and that it has had historic um, scars that are still, um, re that um, we still see today. So I wouldn't say that the institutions have been used to abuse due process. I wouldn't say due process of law has been used to abuse minorities. I would say that people have refused to implement due process of law because they wanted to abuse minorities, of course. And of course you'd have to teach about that. I mean, that's the entire history of segregation and the subjugation of black Americans up to the Civil Rights Act, for sure. Of course, and, and they, this is why it's such a lie when people say that if you don't want to teach critical race theory, you don't want to teach history. I'm fine with teaching every ugly part of American history. What I'm not fine with is the idea that the foundational ideas of the United States of America, the notion that we are created equal before God with certain inalienable rights and that government was instituted in order to protect these rights, I disagree with the fundamental idea that these were a cover for power designed in order to subjugate black Americans. I think that's a lie, and I think it's deleterious to teach that to kids. Okay, so um, I don't want to misinterpret your position, but it's your belief, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, okay? 
Um, it's your belief that America is fundamentally a skillsocracy, as you call it, as, as opposed to a meritocracy, correct? Yes. Then how... <laughs> because I don't connect moral merit with, with intellect. People are born... Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I get that, yeah. nice. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, the, um, my question is, how do you explain the fact that the vast majority of American inequality is caused by the people who you know, the neighborhoods you grew up in, the amount of wealth your parents have, and thousands and thousands and thousands of other... Wh whether you believe that race is involved or not, but thousands of other non-skill-based factors... Um, that are integral to moving ahead in the American system? So I don't think that that's true primarily. What I think is that the, all of those things have an impact on the skills that manifest in the marketplace. No question. But what the market measures is, is at the point of the skills. It's not measure, if there's a skilled person who's coming from an impoverished background where there's a lot of single motherhood and crime, for example, and that person has high skills, that person is going to do fine. Okay, but the problem is that all of those things can contribute to a lack of skills. Right? This is part of my argument, and the only way to, to actually alleviate that problem is to change the cultural milieu that makes it very difficult for people to achieve a certain level of skills in particular communities. Single motherhood makes it very difficult, for example, for kids to grow up in an environment where they have a solid family home, where they're studying a lot at home, where education is, is of primary value as opposed to just getting through the day crime-free, for example, and without being victimized by neighbors. High crime areas. Right? All of these things are things that we can alleviate, and, and I think that we should alleviate them. These are real problems to people fully developing their skills. The point that I'm making is that the system of economics is not punishing people for their upbringing. It's punishing them for lack of skills, which may in fact be an effect of their upbringing. Right? But, th but that does not mean that primarily the skillsocracy is punishing people for their, for, for their environment or for their race. It is punishing them for the fact that when it comes time for them to go to the job market, they don't have the same skills as the person next to them. So the question becomes not, how do we get rid of the skillsocracy? The question becomes, how do we get rid of the obstacles to people who could be more skilled becoming more skilled? And that means creating cultural institutions that matter. It means creating communities. It means trying to ensure that people have a father and a mother in the home, trying to make sure that people can live in safe neighborhoods where there are thriving communities, where there are jobs available. Right? That, would, that would effectuate a better opportunity set to enter the skillsocracy. But what I see is people attacking the distribution of reward at the skills level as opposed to attacking the underlying problem, which creates a lot of the inequalities you're talking about. Yeah. I, I'd rather... Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was wondering, you, so you believe that um, things like single motherhood, things like growing up in high crime areas are inherently cultural rather than um, to do with any institutions or any inequalities uh, that are part of American society institutionally? No, I think that history has a long tail. But I think that the only way that you fix that is by changing the incentive structure for individuals right now. So I think that you can blame the... the, the amount of crime in a particular community on a long history of disinvestments in that community 50, 60 years ago, I don't think it's going to change a damn thing. And I don't think pouring money into the community is necessarily the solution. I think if you're looking at high crime levels, I think the best solution is you need more cops on the ground to stop the crime. This is what's going to allow people to invest in the area and provide more jobs. And I think that trying to spend all of your time... The question is, are we trying to, are we trying to diagnose a problem that is solvable, or are we trying to just describe the history of the problem? If we want to describe the history of the problem, that's fine, but using that as a substitute for a practical solutions-based approach to problems is a political mistake. One is the study of historians, the other is the study of politicians and political actors that ought to actually be applied in real life. So, 
When you have a solution like affirmative action or you have a solution like uh, benefiting people from lower income communities, and I know obviously there's a difference between affirmative action on the racial level and affirmative reaction on the economic level, you think that government policy should have no role in, uh, in alleviating those inequalities even though government policy purportedly in the past, even though I would argue currently, created those inequalities in the first place? I think that any time the government attempts to remedy past discrimination by the use of current discrimination, all they are doing is effectuating discrimination and undermining the skillsocracy that allows for positive externalities, yes. Hi, Ben. How are you? Doing okay. How are you? Great. Um, how come you claim to be 5'9", even though you're like 5'5"? Five five? I don't know. How tall are you? You're 5'9"? I'm actually 5'9". Okay, come over here. Let's see. I'll be honest, I planted. I'm waiting years to do that. Hi, how are you? Um, my question is regarding two very high-profile court cases going on right now, the uh, Ahmed Arbery trials and the Kyle Rittenhouse trials. And my question is, what do you believe would be the outcome of these trials and why? Okay, so I think that there's what will happen and what should happen. I'm not going to try and predict what will happen because you cannot predict what juries are going to do. Uh, what should happen, Rittenhouse should be acquitted. Uh, he clearly acted in self-defense. That doesn't mean that I would send my 17-year-old over to Kenosha, Wisconsin in order to protect property and, and provide medical aid to people, but it does mean that the shootings that he committed were in self-defense. The evidence is pretty much as clear as day on that one, uh, and uh, the prosecutor has no case and, frankly, is making a fool of himself. He looks like he got his law degree for turning in the tops of Cracker Jack boxes. Um, in the Arbery case, the, the, the main question in the Arbery case is going to come down to, legally speaking, whether the whether the McDaniels, who are the, the defendants in this particular case, whether they had the capacity under the citizen's arrest law of Georgia to arrest Arbery. So there was some testimony last week that a couple of weeks before they went after Arbery, they, were to, they went to this house that Arbery had been allegedly inside of, this, this construction site, and tools had been stolen from there and all this. They went there with a local cop, apparently, and the local cop was speaking to them about how there was somebody who looked exactly like Arbery who'd been inside stealing things. Right? And so what this does, it provides the predicate for the notion they have to, that, that if they get a call that somebody is stealing things and that person matches Arbery's description, it, and, and the cop in the tape says it's possibly, he's stealing things, it could be a misdemeanor, it could be a felony. Once it's a felony, you can effectuate a citizen's arrest. So the question is going to be whether that citizen's arrest was lawful or not, the attempted citizen's arrest. Because once you get down to the, the end of it, right, the end of it where they, they're roadblocking him and they're trying to keep him from running away and Arbery runs between the cars, now you essentially have a case of almost mutual self-defense, right? It's actually really a terrible case in which Arbery sees these guys chasing him in trucks. Why is he going to pull over, right? And so he tries to run, 
he goes for the gun, they shoot him. So from their perspective, they're trying to give a citizen's arrest, they have to shoot him in self-defense. From his perspective, he's trying to run away, and they're blocking him and trying to falsely imprison him, and so he's acting in self-defense. So the only way to solve that legal conundrum is whether they were, in fact, under the belief that they were attempting to arrest him, a citizen's arrest, and they had good cause. Like, uh, uh, it has to be by the uh, preponderance of the evidence, like 51%, 49% standard. If they had, prob if they had um, a, a 51 to 49% probability of the evidence that, that he was committing a felony and that they could arrest him, then they could be acquitted. So that's the legal issue. That's what it's going to come down to. Considering that citizen's arrest is a widely outdated law, do you consider that it should be reformed? Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to reform citizen's arrest because, again, there, there are just so many areas where the cops are not available. I mean, what I would like is to make it so that citizen's arrest is not something that anybody really wants to do because the cops are so available that you just call them. Right, and, and by the way, this is what happens in, in, in low-crime, high-income areas, frankly. There are a lot of cops available. There's a lot of security. You don't see a lot of people running around trying to effectuate citizens' arrests in those areas. You typically have somebody calling a police officer. And, uh, sorry, one last question is, do you believe that Rittenhouse traveled to Kenosha with the intent of stirring trouble or not? Um, I think that by the available evidence, he went there with the intent of providing medical aid and brought the gun because he thought the trouble was might break out or could break out. I don't think that he went there to shoot anybody, if that's the question. And I think the prosecution's case that he went there to shoot somebody is undermined by pretty much every single fact on the ground, including his own behavior that night. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Okay, how are you? I'm good. Um, so, in our country, we have a lot of billionaires. We have a lot of companies that are worth billions of dollars. Thank God. It's a great country. Uh, Sure. So, so Tesla uses lithium mines in Africa where children are employed. Uh, they're paid very little amounts of money. They're starving. Uh, Nike uses children in Asia where they're working with textiles and they are injured frequently. These are all dangerous conditions. Uh, all these companies, all these billionaire, billionaire companies have these similar like problems at the bottom ring. Do you think that that, do you think that that's exploitation? Do you think that exploitation is a problem? And do you think that your idea of free market capitalism has an answer for exploitation? So, so, so I think that every economic system has a problem of exploitation if it's not bound by certain levels of morality. Right? Socialism has a level of exploitation too, which you see in the Soviet Union, for example. You can treat workers as chattel, and you can treat them as trash, and you can force them into doing jobs they don't want or gulag them. So any system of economics that, that relies on, on force is a form of exploitation. I would say that the problem that you see with regard to China is not per se free markets. It's the fact that the Chinese government is willing to allow its own citizens to be used as child labor. And the fact that there is no governance structure in Africa at all to protect children, if what you're saying about Tesla is true, I'm going to assume that it is. I don't know enough about the issue. Um, so assuming that that is the case, there's nothing in free market capitalism that prohibits people who are incapable of making decisions for themselves from being exploited. That's true, right? I mean, if, if you can find somebody who's, a, this is particularly true with child labor, children are not capable of consent. If children are incapable of consent, then free market conditions should not prevail, and there should be laws on the books that prevent companies from actually using that sorts of labor. Right? We've had child labor laws in the United States for quite a while, and I agree with those. Uh, so, but that's not to suggest that any other economic system wouldn't be similarly prone to exactly the same kinds of problem as long as you are saying that, that exploitation is simply a function of economic growth or even economic distribution. 
right? They, they're almost two separate issues. So one is an issue of morality. Immoral people can use any system in order to harm other people, and particularly children, and people who can't protect themselves. The case that socialism makes is that people who are fully capable of consent are also exploited, and that, I think, is a lie. Well, do you, do you think that... Um, I apologize. Oh, no worries. I, I just tripped up, but... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean, I think that the, the broader point that I'm making is that when it comes to... Sorry, did you remember? So, yeah. So, yeah. would you be in favor of legislation here in the United States that prevents billionaire companies and multi-billion dollar companies from using exploitation around the world? Uh, depending on what we are defining as exploitation, sure. I mean, if we're talking about, like, forcing small children to make Nike shoes, absolutely. Child labor. Yes. Child labor, yeah. yes. Okay. Yes. Well, and, and by I'm the way, glad we're in agreement. And, and by, and, and by I'm the way, glad we're in agreement. I, yeah, and, 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 and by the way, I would agree with, with a, a United States policy of tariffing any company abroad that, that also uses similar levels of labor. Because the big problem is that the reason companies in the United States presumably do that sort of stuff is in order to compete with companies abroad that are using exactly that sort of labor. So punishing those companies abroad from doing that would also be a way of preventing them from entering American markets and undercutting companies that are now undergoing the higher labor cost of having to not use small children to make shoes. Hello, I just wanted to ask, so I wanted to bring up the fact that you talked about individuals and everything, and I wanted to bring up a few examples, like, for example, like COVID and like, say, like the 2008 financial collapse and even like the 1994 crime bill and things like that. Those have definitely effects on big groups and especially like the black community and everything. Like after the 2008 uh, financial collapse, not many people got, you know, like I wouldn't say accused, but convicted, for example, not many people on Wall Street, the individuals who did profit a lot from those things. But millions of people were kicked out of their homes and everything. And you talk about like us, things like these being, or America being, you know, based on individuals and individuals wanting to achieve different things. But in reality, a lot of like people are affected by their societal factors, their, you know, their environment and everything. So I want to get your answer on that and like how these negative effects, you know, affect the majority of people. But a pos the positives, the money gains, you know, the Wall Street things. Not many of the working class people in Tallahassee, for example, feel that, you know, not many people in Tallahassee felt the uh, after COVID or during COVID, you know, the stock market jumps, the average employer just yep. saw a bunch of just empty, you know, employment you know, options and low wages and everything still in the same old, same old. So, well, I mean, your... OK, so I think that the fundamental idea with regard to it's almost two separate questions. And so I'm going to take them one at a time. The reason I'm separating the questions is because when it comes to corporate bailouts, for example, I'm sure you and I agree. I don't think that any of those corporations should have been bailed out. I think that if you engage in the moral hazard of wrecking your own company, I don't see why I'm supposed to pay for that or you're supposed to pay for that. In a free market system, you're supposed to bear the consequences of the risks that you take. I think that's true across the board. And I think that whether you're a big rich guy on Wall Street and you lose your entire company or whether you're a guy who took out a loan that you couldn't afford on your house, if you take out too much, that is, as I am constantly for saying, a you problem. If you take a risk and then you bear the consequence of that risk, that's no one's fault but your own. And anybody who comes in to bail you out from that, particularly if you're talking about with like billions of dollars in order to prop up a particular lifestyle, that's a huge mistake and it's a huge problem and I totally agree with that. And um, for example, with that, like, you know, we 
in America, we do bail these people out. You know, our capitalist system does not. You that's know, not capitalism. That's cronyism. It definitely. Yeah, people say that, but no, but it's true. It's it's no, but it's we, we do bail these people out. And right. I'm just saying that that's not capitalism. That's actually closer to corporatism, which is the government being in control of the economy, essentially. I mean, it was the where, where is, who's bailing them out? I mean, are they bailing them out? The government is bailing yeah, them out. Yeah, definitely the government. And for example, we don't get these similar bailouts for regular people. Like, for example, Joe Biden was, you know, promoting just $2,000. You know, we're fighting for scraps. I want to understand, like, where does that come from? Like, why are we so, you know, willing to give? Well, I mean, the United States does spend literally trillions of dollars on social welfare programs. The notion the United States has no social safety net at all is not true. The United States spends per citizen tens of thousands of dollars on, on social welfare benefits ranging from Medicaid to food stamps to unemployment insurance to, to a wide variety of programs. The notion that we're wildly out of line with Europe is just not borne out by the statistical facts, actually. It's, it's kind of a, an American myth that we tell ourselves that we don't spend any money on this sort of stuff. It's not true. Since the beginning of the war on poverty, we spent something like $22 trillion on various social programs, and essentially the same number of people live underneath the poverty line. Okay, and then a last question. So we have this... Uh infrastructure bill going through and you see people like Joe Manchin, you know, arguing over, you know, what is it, $5 billion in regards to it or just, you know, the, just a little price difference, for example. Over the past 20 years, we've been fighting wars in Afghanistan and we spent trillions and billions of dollars. And you have these politicians saying that these infrastructure bills that will help us on our domestic front, these small price changes are going to have dramatic effects on, you know, our future and our children. And that's why they, you know, the, the Republican Party, they definitely, you know, go for austerity in those, you know, factors. So, so the, the wars, to take an example, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were expensive. They cost grand total somewhere between 3 and $4 trillion last I checked. The United States spends about $4 trillion dollars in budget every single year, and we spend about $7 trillion last year. That's every year, right? Yeah, I just want to know what that, that, what that means for the future of our children. If we're willing to spend that much on war, like, what does that mean in regards to, you know, these infrastructure bills, us fighting over these small well, I mean, amounts in well, comparison we're not, to war? We're not really fighting over small amounts. These are very large amounts of money. The entire American budget 40 years ago was not nearly as much as one of these infrastructure bills. I mean, 20 years ago it wasn't. And you just go back and look at the budgeting. So we're spending unsustainable amounts of money on nearly everything in American life to, to point out defense spending as opposed to what really constitutes the vast bulk of our budget, which is everything else. Defense spending as a percentage of the American budget is something like 20%, 25% of the American budget. I think it was even that high. That, that is not the chief driver of systemic spending problems in the United States. It's, these, it's, it's massive mandatory spending programs. I, I have to ask you a question. Were you the guy before who I saw a picture of holding uh, the uh, very creative flag? Of, yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was. Outside. Yeah, dude, I, I just, I got to ask you, like, Lenin and Stalin? Really? Yeah, definitely Lenin and Stalin. It's just Lenin and Stalin? Uh, Stalin really? definitely due to World War II, you know. I mean, and the we're Soviet... talking about exploitation of people? I mean Stalin like, I mean we, killed... we do a lot of that in America too. I live in Tallahassee there's a lot of exploitation. I used to work at a lot of places and there's a lot of poor were, were people. Were you gulags though? Were you like, were, were, we have were you prisons like in America, too. Were you, we have, were you one you know, of the, like, 30 targeted. million people murdered by Stalin? Like, really, I, really, if you're going to go Marxist, then please find a better Marxist to emulate than, than Lenin or Stalin, mass murderers. Soviet Union, the Soviet Union during World War II saved the world. I would say that. Uh, if it had not been for Stalin, World War II never would have started because it was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that allowed the Nazi Germans to believe that they could invade Eastern Europe.
This will be the last question that Mr. Shapiro takes for the evening. That's Sorry, a lot of guys, pressure. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> my name is Andrew, um, and uh, I used to, I was introduced to you by the Michael Knowles book, uh, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Your quote that said thorough at the top, and it was a blank book. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that book. Um, but um, I, uh, my, my question is um, about, uh, it's like, in the, in the way that like the 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 things that you're saying about um, certain you know things being done with hard work, seeing, things being done with intellect, um, as kind of like a you know a slippery slope to to more right like you know racist things or like white supremacist things. Um, the question is like a FSU specific question about um, what your thoughts are about the difference between canceling someone for what they believe and accountability in a position where they should have accountability, um, specifically Jack Denton, who is a, was an FSU, I believe, Senate um, person. But he was basically, he had, um, sorry, <laughs> I should be more knowledgeable about this, but, um, and I really don't want to be the, the college student destroyed by Ben Shapiro. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but the question is basically, he was, a, he was an FSU student that um, had anti-BLM, anti-transgender uh, uh, comments in um, a Catholic group that he had, the he Facebook group or something. If someone wants to correct me on that, they can, but a group me, gotcha. Different application. Okay. Um, but the question is basically, uh, what are your thoughts on that, you know, I mean, so, so my, my basic view of cancel culture, I won't comment on a specific case because I really don't know the facts of the case, um, but the, my, my general thoughts on, on cancel culture versus what they call accountability culture is you get to hold somebody accountable for a thing that they do in the space where they do it. What I mean by that is I speak on politics. If I say something bad about politics, you cannot listen to my show. You can say that, that I'm a bad man and you, should, and you can come after me and you can tell people not to listen to me and all of that. If you go after my advertisers who are advertising on a wide variety of programs, then that is an attempt to cancel as opposed to an attempt to, to hold accountable because the person that you're actually attempting to hold accountable is not me. You're attempting to go after advertisers who have had nothing to say about any of the... That my advertisers, I assume, disagree with a lot of what I say. Right? Just because they advertise on the program does not mean that they approve of everything I say, any more than they agree with everything on MSNBC if they advertise on both of us. Um, the, this, this holds true across, I would say, industries. So you see, you'll see a plumber, and a plumber has some sort of bad thing on a Facebook page. And the idea is that you can no longer use this plumber because of what was on their Facebook page that they were talking about politics. That seems very silly to me. If you can unclog my toilet, I'll use you as the plumber. These two things have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. If it impacts your job performance, that's accountability culture. If it impacts not your job performance, it just impacts sort of your public perception, that seems a lot more like cancel culture to me. As a member of student government, do you think that he should be held accountable to those beliefs? I mean, it depends who's holding him accountable. In other words, was he, uh, you'll have to tell me the story. Did they, was he dumped by the school from his position in the student senate, or did people just not elect him in the future? Yeah, it was a vote of no confidence from the um, student government. I mean, I, I can say whether I disagree or agree with that, but I can also say that if a student government votes that they don't want somebody else in student government because of something that they've said politically, then I, I can think that they are, are being censorious. I'm not sure that that counts as formal cancel culture in the sense that they're being canceled for something that, that is outside the purview of which they're, they're normally speaking. Uh, but I can still think that the people who are doing it are jackasses. I don't know what he said. 
So both of those things can be true at once. Sometimes accountability culture, as it's called, can also be misused. It's not like a hard divide between accountability culture is good and cancel culture is universally bad. Right? I could probably think of hypothetical scenarios where that's not true.